Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. You know, everyone loves a good rescue story. I recently stumbled upon an amazing story that takes place near the end of World War II. This is when the U.S. Army Rangers, in partnership with Filipino guerrillas, pulled off what is considered by many military experts to be the most daring rescue mission in U.S. military history. In 1942, U.S. forces suffered a devastating defeat to the Japanese in the Philippines that led to approximately 12,000, 12,000 American soldiers being taken as prisoners of war. Supreme Leader of the Pacific Allied Forces, General Douglas MacArthur, vowed to return as soon as possible and take back the Philippines and rescue our soldiers. Well, unfortunately, it took him more than two and a half years to get the Philippines back. And over those next two and a half years, thousands, literally thousands of American soldiers were either executed or deported to the mainland of Japan to work in labor camps. In January of 1945, intelligence reports revealed there were only about 500 POWs remaining from that 12,000 that had been captured. And they were living in deplorable conditions in a camp near the village of Cabanatuan, deep in the Philippine jungle. And I hope I pronounced that right. I'm not sure if I did, but... Eventually, MacArthur and Allied forces did return to the Philippines and began to push the Imperial Army out of that uh, part of the Pacific. However, this terrified the POWs instead of encouraging them because Japan was known for killing prisoners before their army retreated. Still, the U.S. Army was determined to bring their fellow soldiers home, no matter how difficult that might be. So on January 28, 1945, 120 Army Rangers and 80 Filipino guerrilla fighters traversed 30 miles of dense jungle to reach the Japanese prison camp holding the POWs on the following day. So, keep in mind, this is 30 miles behind Japanese lines. On nightfall, of January 30th, the rescue team launched a sneak attack on the 300 Japanese soldiers occupying the camp. They had to strike decisively and then exfiltrate, exfiltrate excuse me, quickly because there were an estimated 1,000 additional Japanese soldiers just a couple of miles away. So after carrying out a meticulously planned and textbook assault, the entire camp was brought under American control in just six minutes. Malnourished to the point of near death, many of the soldiers, excuse me, many of the prisoners had to be assisted onto ox carts for the long journey back to the American lines. Now, despite their exhaustion, they still wept with tears of joy 
because they had been saved and they had been set free. In the end, over 500 American, British, and Dutch soldiers and a few civilians were rescued from certain death. And the Rangers who completed the mission were awarded the prestigious Medal of Honor by President Roosevelt. When news of the great raid at Cabanatuan reached the American mainland, our nation rejoiced, rejoiced, and renewed its efforts to win the war in the Pacific. Now, did you know the scriptures describe unredeemed sinners as prisoners of war, trapped behind enemy lines, unable to save themselves, and in desperate need of rescue. With all due respect to the men and women who served our country in World War II, the Christmas story is actually the greatest rescue mission of all time. I'm excited to tell you why, but before I do, let's begin with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word as we study it together. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, thank You that Your Word stands forever, that although the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word will stand forever, as it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Thank you, Lord, for the men and women who gave their very lives throughout church history so we could have copies of your word to read to ourselves. Lord, would you please bless this time in your word and help us to grow in our knowledge and our relationship with you. Please, Lord, give us a fresh and a gripping new understanding of the Christmas story today. In the conquering name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're continuing a series that I started earlier this month. I'm calling Christmas in Five Words. This is my best attempt to boil down the Christmas story into five words that we can memorize together. Five words that summarize what the scriptures say the Christmas story is really all about. Now, if you find this video helpful, would you please consider liking this video on YouTube and share it with some friends or family members who need to know the true meaning of Christmas? That would be awesome, and I know it would bless them as well. Well, in the first couple of lessons from this series, we learned that the Christmas story began with a promise from God in the book of Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. And it was fulfilled with His incarnation on Christmas morning. Thus, our first two words are promise and incarnation. Now, today's key word the third word that we need to learn in this Christmas season is Savior. Savior. So we would have promise, incarnation, and Savior. Now, 
before we look at Matthew chapter 1 together, let me just give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. Uh, This chapter gives us a peek, just a peek into Joseph's response when he finds out that his fiancée Mary is pregnant with a child that is not his own. Being pregnant out of wedlock back then was frowned upon greatly in Jewish culture, and it brought scorn upon such couples. For this reason, Joseph wanted to call off the engagement quietly, but as you'll soon see, an angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream and tells him to do otherwise, because God was up to something much bigger than Joseph could ever imagine. And so with that, Please look with me at Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When God woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord, excuse me, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, I've got one main point and two subpoints for you in this lesson today. The first main, the main point is this. The reason for the Christmas rescue mission is our captivity to sin. The reason for the Christmas rescue mission is our captivity to sin. Please notice Joseph's, excuse me, the angel's instructions to Joseph. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. In the original language, New Testament Greek scholars call this phrase the future indicative mood. This means the angel is making a statement about the future that is so certain, it's as if it has already happened. Now, parents, we do this all the time when we tell our children firmly, for example, you will clean your room before you go play with your friends or play video games. You know, we, did you see me put on that dad face and that dad voice? You will clean your room. And your child knows that if they don't, it is certain in the future that they're never going to see their friends, their smartphone, or their video games again. Well, that's kind of how it was with Joseph. There was no negotiating or debating what the name of this child in Mary's tummy would be. The baby born in a manger 
had to be named Jesus. Why, you might ask? Well, let's break down the second half of verse 21 because there's a lot of meat on this bone. And this brings me to your first subpoint, letter A. Jesus is better than you can imagine. Jesus is better than you can imagine. Notice in verse 21, it says, He will save. He will save. The word for save in the original text is the Greek word sozo. It means to make someone safe and sound or to rescue someone from danger or destruction. Uh, more on this in a moment. But who was Jesus sent to save? Well, the answer to that question as well is in the text. His people. Well, who are they? According to the scriptures, it was the Jews first, and then any Gentile who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Now, here's letter B. You are worse than you realize. You are worse than you realize. What do his people need to be saved from? Well, there are actually two answers to that question. One is explicit in this verse, and the other is more implicit. First, it says in the text, in verse 21, that we need to be saved from our sins or their sins. His people need to be saved from their sins. Sins comes from a, the Greek word hamartia. It means to miss the mark or to violate God's law. But simply put, sin is any act or thought committed or omitted that violates the Word of God. And so the explicit answer to the question that I pose, what, what do they need to be saved from, is that we need to be saved from the bondage of our sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us that apart from Christ, we are enslaved to our sin. This means we lack the spiritual power in ourselves to stop sinning. Now, the implicit answer to the question, what do we need to be saved from, is God's wrath. Jesus said in John 3.36 that whoever believes in him and obeys him will have eternal life. But whoever does not, quote, Jesus said, the wrath of God remains on him. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So what is God's wrath exactly? Well, it's simply his hatred for and judgment and punishment of our sin. And it's something that the scriptures talk about over and over again that will come in the future. Now, this combination of God's love and God's justice can be more easily seen in the most popular verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. You know it, just like I know it, and we've heard it many, many times. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I have found that 
most Christians, all Christians, I think it's safe to say, love the part of John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I used to think, though, the word perish meant death. And I have found that perish, the other part of the verse in John 3.16, is often overlooked. You probably have done this too. However, after further study, I discovered that the word for perish in the original text of John 3.16 actually means to be lost, ruined, cast out, or destroyed. Jesus is referring to God's wrath that he will eventually pour out on sin and sinners who have rejected the opportunity to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we see God's sovereign hand in the details of Jesus' name. The Greek word for Jesus, which is Jesus, it's actually derived from the Hebrew root in the Old Testament that means Yahweh saves. In fact, you want to write that, if you want to write that down on your outline that you downloaded off of our website, you can just write Jesus equals Yahweh saves in the Greek and Hebrew. This means that God the Father intentionally chose a name for the Savior of the world that would remind the world of the salvation that He offers. And so every time the Jews said Jesus' name, they would hear Yahweh saves in their native tongue. So Matthew 121 by itself reveals the profound truth that we not only need to be saved, but also the amazing fact that God is willing to save us. And I might add, John 3.16 reveals the same things. Now, I've become very concerned, I have to be honest with you, as a pastor, that one of the reasons so many professing Christians are apathetic about their faith is that deep down in their hearts, they believe they could have earned their ticket to heaven with good works and moral behavior. However, when they were offered salvation through Christ, they chose Him as sort of a shortcut. It's as though they think, well... I was going to heaven anyway, but I'll take Jesus because he'll make it easier and it won't take as long. Let me just say, dear loved ones, Jesus is not a shortcut. He's not a shortcut at all. In fact, he's the only way, truth, and life. No one, no one anywhere in the universe comes to the Father except through him. Jesus said that himself in John 14, 6. Those are his own words. There's no wiggle room. So one of the biggest causes, I think, of spiritual apathy is that our inherited sin nature deceives us into thinking we're better than we actually are. And this, in turn, makes God, in our own eyes, not as good as he actually is. One of my favorite authors, J.C. Ryle, illustrates it like this. He says, we are like a blind man who cannot tell the difference between a painted masterpiece or a posting on a village bulletin board. 
that we are like a deaf man who cannot distinguish between a penny whistle or a cathedral organ. And that we are like farm animals whose smell is most offensive to us, but have no idea that they are offensive and not offensive to one another. So in other words, we all think we don't stink because we can't smell our own stink. Well, in a similar sense, we have no idea how offensive our sin is to a holy God. And that's bad news. However, there's good news. And again, I've got to lean on J.C. Ryle because he says it better than I ever could. And the good news is, despite our wicked sinfulness and stubbornness and rebellion against a holy God, J.C. Ryle also says, God is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. The birth of Jesus Christ affirms that we are both lost without Christ, but also not abandoned. This is the wonder and blessing of the Christmas story. that God sent forth His Son so that we might have life through Him, through repentance and faith. Now, let's pause the video for just a moment. I'd like you to talk about this discussion question. How would the world be different if Jesus had not come and there was no Christmas? Think about that for a moment. Talk about that with whoever you're watching this video with, and I'll be right back. Well, here's a few thoughts that came to my mind that you probably thought of too. And that is, first of all, there, there would be no Easter. You see, if Jesus isn't born, he doesn't die on the cross and he doesn't conquer death by resurrecting himself from the grave. And thus, there would be no gospel. And that's bad news because it then means we'd have no hope or means by which to be saved from the consequences of our sin. There would also be no church. And yes, there would be no Christmas music, lights, gifts, cookies, and so on. But that's why we need to remember that the Christmas story is the greatest rescue mission of all time. The fact that Jesus Christ was born in a manger in order to be our Savior is powerfully proclaimed in my favorite Christmas carol, O Holy Night. What many people don't know is that the lyrics to this Christmas standard were written by an unbelieving Frenchman named Placide Capot. And I, pardon my French, I've never taken French, but that's my best attempt at pronouncing his name. He wrote these lyrics as a poem in 1847. He then, this French wine collector, I'll just call him Placide, he handed these lyrics over to a famous composer that he knew, a Jewish composer named Adolf Adams. Now, the fact that he was Jewish is very important to know because it means that Adolf Adams, the composer who wrote the score for Holy, Whole Holy Night, was also not a believer because modern Jews don't believe that Jesus is the true Messiah 
or promised Savior. Despite this, Adams was able to write a beautiful score that was performed at midnight mass in the village's church on Christmas Eve in 1847. O Holy Night quickly became a favorite song to sing on Christmas Eve in churches throughout France for the next few years. That is, until the French Catholic Church leaders banned the carol from being sung in their parishes because they discovered the song was written by two unbelievers, two non-church attenders. Well, around 1857, about 10 years after the A Holy Night had been written, American songwriter John Dwight heard the French version of the carol, and he was so deeply moved by it that he translated it from French into English, and he published it in several songbooks excuse me, throughout the end of the 19th and 20th century. Ever since then, O Holy Night has been a part of America's Christmas song catalog. And one of the reasons I, I love O Holy Night is that it captures both the problem of our sin and the solution of the Savior all in the first verse. I also love it because it gives us the application or the proper response to verse 1 in the chorus. Now, we've probably all heard and sung this song before, but I'd like you to Ponder the lyrics for a moment with me so we can really understand what we're singing when we sing it, or what we're listening to when we hear it on the background, in the background, excuse me, during the Christmas season. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And by the way, pining means to yearn for something, to yearn for release or change. And what the author is saying here is that the world is pining, yearning to be set free from their sin, and that Jesus is the solution to that. Well, till he appears and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. That's the response. That's the application. Fall on your knees and worship. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night. Oh, holy night. Oh, night divine. Well, the Christmas story is the greatest rescue mission of all time because it's about Jesus Christ coming to earth to save helpless sinners like you and me, to literally rescue sinners like you and me. And anyone who sincerely repents of their sins and trusts in Christ alone for their eternal salvation can be rescued from paying for their sins and spending eternity separated from God in hell. This is why the third word we need to learn this Christmas season is Savior. Well, I hope this study in Matthew chapter 1 helps make your Christmas season extra special. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you were blessed by this video, please give it a thumbs up on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. May the Lord bless you, and I'll see you again soon. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.